Part 2 of Chapter 5 of The Trial of a New Society by Justice Ebert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Atwill to the Jury. District Attorney Atwill's summing up was direct, incisive, and able. As ex Judge Sisk said, quote, Harry surpassed himself. End quote. He first dealt with the case from the technical and then from the social standpoint. Though he handled the latter phase somewhat perversely, that is, in a reactionary rather than progressive spirit, and with an eye to victory rather than justice, he got nearer to the heart of the controversy than did his legal brethren on the opposing side. We will not give the district attorney's speech in full. Etter's and Giovanniti's speeches both reiterate his arguments, while at the same time demolishing them. But we will give his conclusion, his peroration, as delivered, as follows. Quote, they say that this labor organization is a revolutionary organization, that they are carrying on its ideals as a revolutionary organization, that their principles are revolutionary. I agree to that proposition. They say that they are going to carry it on separate and apart from political action. Then how can you have peaceful revolution unless it is political? One of the foundation rocks upon which this government was started the first proposition placed in the Constitution of Massachusetts by the patriots who had gone through the Revolutionary War, the men who had suffered, the men who had gone through every deprivation, their families had suffered. The thing that resounded as a result of Bunker Hill, Lexington, Concord, that representing the frozen feet at Valley Forge and the Battle of Monmouth, what do we have as a result? The first thing put in the Constitution of Massachusetts as a foundation rock, not lost in the end, not lost in the middle, but the first thought of those men who had gone through deprivation is contained in the first article of the Bill of Rights of Massachusetts, and it says that men have certain necessary, essential, and natural rights, among which may be reckoned the right of acquiring, possessing, and preserving property. This thing cannot be taken away according to their ideas. Their property cannot be confiscated. That this country was established upon the theory that the individual, so long and so far as we could permit it, should have free opportunities so long as he did not interfere with the rest, that he had the right to preserve and protect his property, that he had the right to take care of his wife and his family, that the widow and the orphan and other people on this earth who were left without support by those who were the workers in their families should be protected when they were gone. These men start with the proposition, quote, This is revolutionary, this is the thing we ordain, that we, only we, who are working in this or that industry have any rights therein. We will determine how much of it we will take. We will determine when we will take it. We will determine whether or not we will assault it and break it down. End quote. That is the type of man who says that he is here helping Massachusetts in an ideal. That constitution, gentlemen, was not created by the Tory. It was not created by the coupon-cutting class. It was created by the plain, everyday average citizen who had his house and his little home who fought the revolution that a new idea might be established on this earth. He was not helped by the capitalist. He was not helped by the wealthy class. They all sailed away to the old country of England. And when this man comes here teaching the new men who come across from southern Italy that the Constitution of Massachusetts was created by the capitalists and for the capitalists, he is teaching sedition and treason to the institutions of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We have some ideals. We have got to sustain them. We have got to see that they are preserved. If we are to rearrange the distribution of property, the ownership of property, we will do it in an orderly manner through the law and through the Constitution and through the legislature. Massachusetts has had her troubles. 
Massachusetts has had her perplexities. We know that a changing civilization brings them on, ever-changing and complex problems. But we know, too, that our people, without ideals, without aspirations, can change and meet those perplexing problems as they come, without the intervention of the Haywoods of Colorado, the Edders of California, or the Giovannides of Italy. This is the proposition we are confronted with. If what I say is true, if this organization came there, if this organization started on the passionate people in acts of violence, and through their acts of violence they caused murder, we have got to meet it, and we have got to meet it courageously, like men. Because if we do not meet it, if we do not choke the proposition in its inception, it will go on to the end, and we will be met with the proposition whether in this commonwealth we are to have a government of law and order, under the stars and stripes, or a government of law and order under the red flag. Isn't that true, gentlemen? Isn't this more than a struggle between capital and labor? It is a struggle between organized society, a struggle between the sovereignty of the state and the sovereignty of the mob. I, for one, prefer the sovereignty of the state and the sovereignty of law and order. We have a grand old commonwealth. As someone has said, quote, It will be grand so long as you do your duty and I do mine and the court does his. End quote. But when we falter, when Essex County falters in the march of progress, then indeed the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will cease to be grand. I have been referred to some lines on a monument erected to a famous statesman in the South, who brought the boys in blue and the boys in grey into one camp, which it seems to me is not inappropriate in this case. On Grady's monument are inscribed these words, quote, Who saves his country saves all things, and all things saved will bless him. Who lets his country die lets all things die, and all things dying curse him. End quote. End Atwell's address. The prosecuting attorney's address was received with a due appreciation of the gravity of the issues involved. It was plain to be seen that his statement raised these issues out of the criminal court into the social arena, and there the defendants were both willing to have them decided, even though they suffered death in the meanwhile. After a brief consultation between the defense and the court, the latter announced his praiseworthy decision to allow the defendants to address the jury. With a few words of admonition to keep the argument to the testimony, the court gave the floor to Etter. Etter to the jury. It was an intensely dramatic moment when Etter arose to address the jury. All necks were craned in his direction, and all ears listened intently to his words. Etter spoke eloquently and with dignity. He repeated himself in a desire to be understood which was his one great blemish. Etter struck the keynote of the prosecution in his opening words, quote, I have not been tried on my acts, end quote, he declared. Quote, I have been tried here because of my social ideals. Nothing can efface the fact that because of my political and social ideas I am brought here to trial. I am impelled to speak here because of the fact and nothing more. The district attorney has argued that you were to draw certain inferences from what I said because, not that I said it, but because I may have said it, because I held certain views. In other words, because I hold the view that all wealth is the product of labor, and therefore should belong to labor, that it follows, according to his argument, that I am in favor of destroying property. I stated on the stand that I believe all the property that is social property. I haven't in mind, gentlemen of the jury, a toothbrush or pipes or anything of that kind. I have in mind machines. I have in mind railroads. I have in mind the things that are necessary to the world, and that the world of labor produces and uses. 
all such property should belong to the world of labor. And I stated on the stand that if the working class, with a policy of violence, destroys any of those machines or any of that property, when it comes into possession of its own, it is that much less that it will have. End quote. Ettore, later on, reverted several times to this position. In discussing St. John's pamphlet, for which the district attorney sought to make him responsible, regardless of his agreement or disagreement therewith, Ettore said, quote, Gentlemen, since my views and my organization have been brought into this argument, I want to state this, that my organization has made it a practice to allow men in the past to express their views as they understood them. The pamphlet is the result. But the pamphlet served its purpose in allowing my social views to be introduced in this case. Now, what are my social views? I have stated some of them. I do believe, I may be wrong, but, gentlemen, only history can pass judgment upon them. All wealth is the product of labor, and all wealth, being the product of labor, belongs to labor and to no one else. I know the district attorney is worried about what is going to happen to the little home, or to the little savings of the working man. He knows that my social ideas are bigger than the proposition to take away the home of the operative, who has saved fifty cents here and a dollar and seventy-five cents somewhere else. He knows that my social views have no relation to the little property owner, but my social views have a relation so far as society is concerned. A railroad is operated by the workers. It is made possible only because there are people living in this country. According to that argument, we insist that the railroad should belong to the people of this country, and not to the railroad owners who are mere coupon clippers. And that principle applies to the textile industry, to the shoe industry, to every industry. It does not apply to the toothbrush or to the pipe, nor to the little shanty the working man is able to erect by scraping and gouging somehow or other. End quote. Again, referring to the views held in general by Giovanetti and himself, Utter said, quote, We state plainly that we will give all that is in us that this present society may be changed, that the present rule of wage labor on one side producing all things and receiving only a part, and idle capitalists on the other producing nothing and receiving the most, end quote, may be ended. Quote, we say that in the past we gave all that was in us so that the workers may rally to their own standard, that they may organize and through their solidarity, through their united efforts, they may, from time to time, step by step, get close together, and finally emancipate themselves through their own efforts, that the mills and workshops of America may become the property of the workers of America, and that the wealth produced in those workshops may be for the benefit of the workers of America. Those have been our views. If we are set at liberty, those will still be our views, and those will be our actions. End quote. Etter also reflected the peculiar social character of the charges against himself and comrades in his historic references. Referring to the anti-foreign arguments of the district attorney, he reminded him of the part foreigners had played in the Revolutionary War. He named especially Kostrzewski and Pulaski, quote, two Polacks, unquote, to whom Longfellow had dedicated an immortal poem. This was also a part of the history and traditions of Massachusetts. But even better in this respect were his references to Christ and other martyrs of history. Quote, I want to state further, gentlemen, that whatever my social views are, as I stated before, they are what they are. With all respect to you, gentlemen, and with all respect to everyone here, they cannot be tried in this courtroom. It has been tried before. I want to know, does Mr. Atwill believe for a moment that, beginning with Spartacus, whose men were crucified for miles along the Appian Way, and following with Christ, who was adjudged an enemy of the Roman social order and was put on the cross. 
Does he believe for a moment that, followed by all the rest, that the cross or the gallows or the guillotine ever settled an idea? It never did. If the idea can live, it lives, because history adjudges it right. An idea constituting a social crime in one age becomes the very religion of humanity in the next. The social criminals of one age become the saints of the next. End quote. Then Etter proceeded to illustrate from quote, the history and traditions of Massachusetts end quote, how seventy years ago the respectable mob, quote, not the mill mob, end quote, but the respectable mob, dragged the advocates of a new order through the streets of Boston. Now that the ideas of Phillips and Garrison are proven of social value, quote, the offspring of that same social mob rises and exclaims, the traditions of Massachusetts, end quote. Quote, gentlemen, end quote, said Etter, quote, the traditions of Massachusetts have been made by those who made them, and not by those who speak of them, end quote. Then he glorified anew John Brown, quote, the criminal, unquote, of whom the nation's noblest and best sang, two years after his, quote, anti-social, unquote, deed, quote, John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on, end quote. Quote, my ideas are what they are, gentlemen, end quote, said Etter, courteously but courageously, as he could afford to do with such social history back of him. Quote, they might be indicted, and you might believe, as the district attorney has suggested, that you can pass judgment on them, and that you can choke them, but you can't. Ideas cannot be choked. End quote. Etter reverted to this argument later on, as we shall see. It is not to be inferred from the foregoing that Etter sought to dodge legal issues behind a statement of social issues. He also met these fearlessly and frankly. His defense of the right of free speech was such as to meet with the approval of every public speaker and of all who appreciate the value of public speaking. Referring to his constitutional right to speak to whomever he pleases, Etter said, very pointedly and appropriately, quote, I didn't understand when I read the Constitution. I never understood when I went to school, ellipsis. I became guilty of murdering my sister when I speak to strikers who were not born in this country. That is one of the counts. End quote. He admitted he made speeches, but insisted that he be judged by his complete speeches and not by distorted quotations. He pointed out the danger to public speakers from the latter course. He also declared that the district attorney had feared to bring to court all the newspaper men who had been stationed at Lawrence and heard him speak. He had only brought two or three, such as were personal enemies to him, or had to testify so as to justify their own published reports. The district attorney was aware of the danger of the other course. Etter also denied, as claimed by the district attorney, that it was a matter of the Commonwealth defending itself. Quote, it is simply that the capitalists of Massachusetts have taken human beings and reduced them down to so many appendages of machines. End quote. Theirs was the shame and the blot. There's the defense. As for the charge of inciting to murder, by innuendo or by a smile suggesting a shotgun and murder, Etter would leave that for the jury to decide. He went on, quote, I came here knowing the conditions of those men and women. It is true I had no relatives, no property, but I had interests that are dearer. I had brothers and sisters who called for me to come and give what aid I was able to give. And I did come. As I told you on the stand, I came with a definite purpose. I came with a determination that I would give all that I could, that I would offer all of my energy, my enthusiasm, my love, 
that I would sing to those workers that they may be able to obtain more bread. I told them that I knew what the situation was, and that I knew from past experience how they had been outraged. I knew further in past troubles between labor and capital how each side behaved. I said then that whatever blood is spilled in this strike will be on the heads of the mill-owners. It was they who provoked this strike, because they refused to live up to the spirit of the law, because they schemed, connived, and conspired in order that the law may have the very opposite effect from the intention of those who advocated it. What is the result? That the strike was to be discredited. Dynamite is planted in the city of Lawrence, planted not by strikers. End quote. Etter declared the attempt to show that the parade of January 29th had not the best objects in the world had failed, and so had the streetcar-smashing charge. He contended that evidence showed the smashing to be of the same character as the dynamite plant. Also that he made the statement after the shooting of Annie Lapizo that he could prove that that also was a put-up job, as time would determine. In this connection, Etter called attention to the fact that the mayor of Lawrence had publicly declared, quote, we will break this strike or we will break the strikers' heads. End quote. He wanted to know if only the strikers understand inciting speeches, and if the police at Garden and Union Streets may not have taken the mayor's statement as authority to act unlawfully. Again, he asked, if it were unreasonable to believe that the mill owners, who had inveigled foreign labor to these shores, violated the spirit of the 54 hour law, planted dynamite, and sent agent provocateurs among the strikers, would have any scruples, if their agents shot into a crowd, about placing the blame on strikers' shoulders. He also referred to the Bencardo brothers, how they had followed him incessantly without result, and were compelled to lie about Giovanniti in order to earn their miserable pay. Quote, Think of it, end quote, exclaimed at her, quote, Young Bencardo and the elder Bencardo, the saviors of the traditions of Massachusetts, the upholders of law and order, end quote. Etter concluded, referring to the social views of Giovanniti and himself, together with the charge against them, quote, If you believe that we should not go out with those views, then, gentlemen, I only ask one favor, and that is this, that you will place the responsibility full on us, and say to the world that Joseph J. Etter and Arturo Giovanniti, because of their social ideas, became murderers, and murdered one of their own sister strikers, and you will, by your verdict, say plainly that we should die for it. As I stated before, I have carried the flag. I carry it here today, gentlemen. The flag of liberty is here. I am willing to carry it just as long as is necessary. But if you believe, ellipsis, that I killed Anna Lepizo, or that I turned a finger that Anna Lepizo or any other human being should be killed, then I will stand up with head erect, gentlemen, with no apology to offer, no excuse to ask. I will accept your verdict, and expect that you will say, quote, you have done what you did, and now we have spoken. End quote. I expect that, if I have carried the flag along, if I have raised my voice, if I have bared my breast against the opposition, that I have done it long enough. And I want to plead with you that, if I am guilty, I want to pay the full price. Full price. No halfway measure. The full price. Gentlemen, those are my views. Those are my feelings. I shall go forward with that one thought in my mind and one satisfaction in my heart that at the last moment I did pronounce to the world my views and that I did announce that my determination is to work for the principles that I hold dear. If I am allowed to work for them, I will, and you, gentlemen, will be thankful. If not, no idea was ever choked. It can't be choked, and this idea will not be choked. 
On the day that I go to my death, there will be more men and women who will ask questions. Millions of men and women will know, and they will have a right to argue that my social ideas had as much the effect of determining your verdict as the facts, and more so in this case. Gentlemen, as I stated before, I ask for nothing but justice in this matter, that is all, and I believe that in asking that I am not asking anything against what the district attorney has called the ideals and the traditions of Massachusetts. Massachusetts refused to give the apostles of abolition to the rule of the cotton kings of the South. It refused to allow their blood to act as so much balm to the wounds of the cotton planters. I ask you now, are twelve men in this county in Massachusetts going to offer blood now, in order that the wounds that the mill owners of Lawrence suffered because of the strike may be assuaged? Gentlemen, it is up to you. I ask for no favor, I only ask for justice. And that is all my comrade Giovanniti asks, and that is all my comrade Caruso asks. I thank you. End quote. When Etter ended, the spectators were visibly affected. It was evident that the speech had made a profound impression. A slight pause, and then there was a stir that broke the tension. There was a feeling in the air as if applause were about to burst out, the rules of the court permitting. As it was, however, all observed a decorous but sympathetic restraint. All were sober and hushed. Giovanniti followed close on Etter in a passionate and tumultuous outburst that was nevertheless more cogent and scholarly than was the speech of his comrade. Giovanniti's great merit consists in his emphasis on the ethical side of the question involved in the trial, and in his unselfish appeal in behalf of Caruso. Giovanniti spoke, in part, as follows. Giovanniti to the jury. Quote, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen of the jury, it is the first time in my life that I speak publicly in your wonderful language, and the most solemn moment in my life. I know not if I will go to the end of my remarks. The district attorney and the other gentlemen here who I used to measure all human emotions with the yardstick may not understand the tumult that is going on in my soul in this moment. But my friends and my comrades before me, these gentlemen here who have been with me for the last seven or eight months know exactly, and if my words will fail before I reach the end of this short statement to you, it will be because of the superabundance of sentiments that are flooding to my heart. Ellipsis. We had come to Lawrence because we were prompted by something higher and loftier than what the district attorney or any other man in this presence here may understand and realize. Were I not afraid that I was being somewhat sacrilegious, I would say that to go and investigate into the motives that prompted and actuated us to go into Lawrence would be the same as to inquire, why did the Savior come to earth? Or why, as my friend said, was Lloyd Garrison in this very commonwealth, in the city of Boston, dragged through the streets with a rope around his neck? Why did all the other great men and masters of thought, why did they go to preach this new gospel of fraternity and brotherhood? It were well, it is well, to inquire into the acts of men. It is just that truth should be ascertained. It is right that the criminals should be brought before the bar of justice, but one side alone of our story has been told here. Only the method and only the tactics. But what about, I say, the ethical part of this question? What about the human and humane parts of our ideas? What about the grand condition of tomorrow as we see it, and as we foretell it now to the workers at large, here in this same cage where the felon has sat, in this same cage where the drunkard, where the prostitute, where the hired assassin has been? What about the ethical side of that? What about the better and nobler humanity where there shall be no more slaves, where no man will be obliged to go on strike in order to obtain fifty cents a week more? where children will not have to starve any more, where women no more will have to go and prostitute themselves, 
let me say, even if there are women in this courtroom here, because the truth must out at the end, where at last there will not be any more slaves, any more masters, but just one great family of friends and brothers. It may be, gentlemen of the jury, that you do not believe in that. It may be that we are dreamers. It may be that we are fanatics, Mr. District Attorney. We are fanatics. But yet so was a fanatic Socrates, who instead of acknowledging the philosophy of the aristocrats of Athens preferred to drink the poison. And so was a fanatic the Savior Jesus Christ, who instead of acknowledging that Pilate or that Tiberius was emperor of Rome, and instead of acknowledging his submission to all the rules of the time and all the priestcraft of the time, preferred the cross between two thieves. And so were all the philosophers and all the dreamers and all the scholars of the Middle Ages, who preferred to be burned alive by one of these very same churches which you reproach me now of having said that no one of our membership should belong to. I ask the district attorney who speaks about the New England tradition what he means by that. If he means the New England traditions of this same town, where they used to burn the witches at the stake, or if he means the New England tradition of those men who refused to be any longer under the iron heel of the British aristocracy, and dumped the tea into Boston Harbor, and fired the first musket that was announcing to the world for the first time that a new era had been established, that from then on no more kingcraft, no more monarchy, no more kingship would be allowed, but a new people, a new theory, a new principle, a new brotherhood would arise out of the ruin and the wreckage of the past. You answer that. And if you believe that human progress is a thing that cannot be stopped and cannot be checked, ellipsis, do not, gentlemen of the jury, believe that Mr. Atwill, standing in front of you with upraised hands, will check this mighty flow of this wonderful working class of the world. It's myriads and myriads of men and women, the flower of the land, who are rushing forward towards this destined goal of ours. He is not the one who is going to strangle this new Hercules of the world of industrial workers, or rather the industrial workers of the world in its cradle. It is not your verdict that will stem, or rather it is not your verdict that will put a dam before this mighty onrush of waves that go forward. It is not the little, insignificant, cheap life of Arturo Giovanniti offered in Holocaust to warm the hearts of the millionaire manufacturers of this town that is going to stop socialism from being the next dominator of the earth. No! No! If there was any violence in Lawrence, it was not Joetter's fault. It was not my fault. If you must go back to the origin of all the trouble, gentlemen, of the jury, you will find that the origin and the reason was the wage system. It was the infamous rule of domination of one man by another man. It was the same principle that existed forty years ago, before your great martyred president, Abraham Lincoln, by an illegal act, which was the proclamation of emancipation, a thing which was beyond his powers as the Constitution of the United States expressed them, put an end to it. I say it is the same principle now, the principle that made a man at that time a chattel slave, a soulless human being, a thing that could be bought and bartered and sold, and which now, having changed the term, makes the same man, but a white man, the slave of the machine, ellipsis, because the man that owns the tool where this another man lives, that man who owns the factory where this man wants to go to work, that man owns and controls his mind, his body, his heart and soul. Gentlemen of the jury, you know that I am not a trained man in speaking to you because it is the first time I speak in your language. You know, gentlemen, if you think that there has ever been a spark of malice in my heart, that I ever said others should break heads and prowl around and look for blood, if you believe that, that I ever could have said such a thing, not only on the 29th of January, but since the first day I began to realize that I was living and conscious of my intellectual and moral powers, then send me to the chair because it is right and it is just then send my comrade to the chair because it is right and it is just. But I want to plead for another man, 
Whatever you do, for heaven's sake take the case of this man at heart, pointing at the defendant Caruso. If Anna Lopizo has been killed, and you think she has been killed through our influence, consider that we alone are responsible for it. Say it is good that we ought to be convicted, regardless of who killed Anna Lopizo, if we uttered those words. But consider this poor man and his wife, his child, this man who does not know just now in this moment why he is here, who keeps on asking me, quote, why didn't they tell the truth? What have I done? Why am I here? End quote. It may be I am appealing to your hearts, not to your intelligence, but I am willing to take all the responsibility. Gentlemen of the jury, I have finished. I don't want to pose to you as a hero. I don't want to pose as a martyr. No, life is dearer to me than it is probably to a good many others. But I say this, that there is something dearer and nobler and holier and grander, something I could never come to terms with, and that is my conscience, and that is my loyalty to my class and to my comrades who have come here in this room, and to the working class of the world, who have contributed with a splendid hand penny by penny to my defense, and who have all over the world seen that no injustice and no wrong was done to me. Therefore I say, weigh both sides, and then judge. And if it be, gentlemen of the jury, that your judgment shall be such that this gate will be opened, and we shall pass out of it and go back into the sunlit world, then let me assure you what you are doing. Let me tell you that the first strike that breaks again in this commonwealth or any other place in America where the work and the help and the intelligence of Joseph J. Etter and Arturo Giovanniti will be needed and necessary, there we shall go again, regardless of any fear and of any threat. We shall return again to our humble efforts, obscure, unknown, misunderstood soldiers of this mighty army of the working class of the world, which, out of the shadows and the darkness of the past, is striving toward the destined goal, which is the emancipation of humankind, which is the establishment of love and brotherhood and justice for every man and every woman on this earth. And on the other hand, if your verdict shall be the contrary, if it be that we who are so worthless as not to deserve neither the infamy nor the glory of the gallows, if it be that these hearts of ours must be stilled on this same death chair, and by the same current of fire that has destroyed the life of the wife-murderer and the patricide and the parricide, then I say, gentlemen of the jury, that tomorrow we shall pass into a greater judgment, that tomorrow we shall pass from your presence, where history shall give its last word to us. Whichever way you judge, gentlemen of the jury, I thank you. End quote. The conclusion of this masterful address found many of the jury in tears, and not a few auditors were sobbing. Had the jury been polled then and there, it is safe to say that they would have voted to release the prisoners without leaving their seats. Judge Quinn quickly adjourned court, after announcing that he would address the jury on the following Monday. At adjournment, many friends gathered about the cage to shake the prisoners by the hands, and to congratulate Utter and Giovanniti on their oratory and courage, and to express belief in their innocence and liberation once more, and with more conviction than ever before. Victory was now assured. The legal battle was, at this stage, practically won. Everyone in the court felt certain of the outcome. When on the following Tuesday, November 23rd, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty, they but reflected popular opinion. The verdict was well received. The liberated trio was given a reception such as Salem will not long forget. They were embraced and kissed by men and women alike, and when outside, given a public ovation that blocked the streets for some distance. They retired to a hall where speeches were made, and all were happy once more. It is again worth noting that Judge Quinn did not thank the jury for their services. One of them, Larson, said it was impossible to believe the state's witnesses they were so lacking in character, while those of the defense were honest and clean-cut. In Lawrence, the verdict was greeted with delight. 
The old strike veterans fell into each other's arms and danced with glee. The stigma of crime had been removed from labor. Once more was honest toil vindicated, and its vicious exploiters defeated. When Etter returned to the city, immense receptions greeted him. As in Salem, the streets were jammed for blocks. On Thanksgiving Day, over five thousand persons stood on the lots, and listened to him for two and a half hours in a snowstorm. Such was the enthusiasm to hear and see him once more. Big meetings greeted Etter in New York also. At these he urged the working class to unite to save itself as it had united to save him. Etter, in his Lawrence speech, attributed his liberation not to the justice of the capitalist courts, but to the working class, whose support made injustice impossible. For this he was roundly condemned by the press, which claimed that he appealed to, quote, class hatred, unquote. The New York world, for instance, claimed he had still to learn his lesson, thereby tacitly admitting that he was originally arrested not for crime, but to punish him in order to teach him the danger of attacking capitalism in the interests of the workers. Since their release, many gifts have been showered on Etter, while Giovanniti has gained additional renown as a poet and orator. An aftermath of the great victory in Salem was the Nole Prossing, in January 1913, by District Attorney Atwell, of the conspiracy charges against William D. Haywood, William E. Troutman, William Yates, Thomas Holliday, James P. Thompson, Guido Mazzarelli, Edmondo Rossini, and Etter Giannini. These charges grew out of the Lawrence strike, and were dependent for success on the conviction of Etter, Giovanniti, and Caruso. With the release of the latter, they fell to the ground, incapable of proof. Thus the Salem victory of the workers was a twofold victory over, quote, law and order, unquote, that is, capitalist dynamiters and crime-promoting politicians. It was the fitting finale to the first great assertion of the workers in behalf of industrial democracy witnessed in this country. May it not be the last. End of chapter 5